So if you will, please stand for the reading of God's word. Ecclesiastes chapter 4, starting in verse 1. Again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors, there was power, and there was no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead, who are already dead, more fortunate than the living who are still alive, but better than both is he who has not yet been and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. Then I saw that all toil and all skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. This also is vanity and a striving after wind. The fool folds his hands and eats his own flesh. Better is a handful of quietness than two hands full of toil and a striving after wind. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. One person who has no other, either son or brother, yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, For whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Two are better than one, because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Better was a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who no longer knew how to take advice. For he went from prison to the throne, though in his own kingdom he had been born poor. I saw all the living who move about under the sun, along with that youth who was to stand in the king's place. There was no end of all the people, all of whom he led. Yet those who come later will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and a striving after wind. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, will you please give us eyes to see and ears to hear your word today? Will you please form us by it? Will you please shape us uh, to be more uh, considerate of the world that you have placed us in and of the circumstances under which we live in a fallen world. And will you please give us your Holy Spirit, Father, to help us act wisely in this world and to hope in the next world and to hope in you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You can be seated. If it helps you, uh, I don't know if I'll reference this again, but if it helps you, I'll give the sermon a title and tell you what kind of our three points are going to be. Um, we're just going to call this Seek the Better, right? There's a series of better than statements in this passage, and we'll talk about that again in just a minute. We're just going to call this Seek the Better. Um, and then we're going to talk, I'm, I'm going to give you guys a lot of intro today because I want us to understand the context of this chapter. Uh, we're going to focus on verses 4 through 12, but we need to understand the opening and the ending of the chapter as well. And so the things we're going to talk about are uh, the empty or empty toil. And then we're going to talk about the worthwhile or friendship. And then we're going to talk about the best of all, right? The greater than Jesus, okay? Um, So I want to give you kind of like a literary introduction to the passage because I think it's important to help us understand what's going on here and even why we're talking about just the middle part uh, and how we think that's still pretty faithful overall to the message of this, this passage. Uh, like I said, there are four better than statements 
in this passage. Uh, right? Solomon, he'll, he'll say something like this, you know, uh, someone is, is better off, right? Like the living, I'm sorry, the dead are better off than the living because they're already done with their suffering, but better than both is he who has not yet been born, right? We toil and struggle for envy, but then there are people who don't work at all because they don't want to be caught in the rat race. But better than both are those who actually apply their hand to something, yet not overly so, right? And so he goes on to say that. And so you've got these four better than statements. Uh, they're not all necessarily related to each other, but what they do is they give the passage a structure, right? So you've got two better than statements uh, on either side of this middle section, which has two vanity statements in it. So verses 7 and 8 open and close with vanity. Again, I saw vanity under the sun. This also is vanity and an unhappy business. Okay, so this forms what uh, in literature is called a chiasm, right? And that name comes from just the Greek word for X, right? So you have two ideas which kind of cross each other and meet in the middle. Uh, or in this case, you have four. So we've got two better thans and then vanity and then two better thans, okay? So that gives us our structure. And it helps us kind of focus in on the, the middle part of the passage here, which actually uh, I would say is the main point of the passage. <clears throat> But it's not exactly a, a cheery passage, is it? Right? Like a lot of Ecclesiastes, Solomon is talking about things that are empty, pointless, things that can't actually be held on to, that we try to hold on to, and in the end, they leave us empty. And he continues to do that here. Uh, and so what he gets at here is, I, I want to put it like this, I want to say that this is like an imminent frame that Solomon is talking about. He's, he's talking about things that man can see, right? He says, uh, God has put eternity into the man of heart, but we cannot see it from beginning to end. We cannot see what God is doing. What we see is birth and work and death. And there's a cycle there that's important for us to see, especially as we get to the end, we'll talk about a cycle here. But there's, there's only so much that we can see, and what we can see is under the sun, right? Brian has mentioned in weeks past, the difference between under the sun and under heaven. We can see something of our world. We see something of history, but we don't see what's beyond that. Not with our, not with our eyes, anyway. We don't encounter that except uh, in the supernatural, something outside of our frame. Something that's outside of the cycle has to break in and show us what our own world is like and what hope there is for it. Okay, so when Solomon makes these statements, he's... I would argue that Solomon's in despair, right? As far as this world goes, he's reached the end of his rope. What we have is nothing better than to work and enjoy the work God has given us. Who knows if the soul of man is any different than the soul of beasts, he says. And then he goes on, okay, well, with that in the background, here are things that are better than other things. But in the middle of it all, something we usually miss. Um, so there's this, there's this despair and there's a cycle of birth and work, toil and death. And in the middle of all this is relationships, other people. And that's what we're going to focus on today. So I want us to talk about, uh, the empty, the, the worthless toil that Solomon has in mind here. 
Right, he says, all toil and skill and work come from a man's envy of his neighbor. Men work and work and work, and yet they have no one to share their labor with, and they have no one to share their gain with. And it's empty. It's vanity. There's nothing to be gained from it. We often think that it's enough that we do our jobs and that we do them well. Right? And that's not just like a Christian idea. I'm not, I'm not saying us. I'm saying kind of everybody, I think. We, we all have this idea that we can gain something from just doing our jobs and doing them well. That uh, we could become famous from them, that we could gain riches from them, that we can take some meaning from them. Right? That we can gain some sort of satisfaction from them. And Solomon is encouraging people to enjoy their work and to rejoice in it. For God has given us that. And yet at the same time, he draws a distinction here between work and toil. There's an empty sort of work. We often think that it's enough just to do work well. Uh, but sometimes we forget that we have to consider what type of work we're doing. Sometimes we forget to consider if the work we're doing itself is worthwhile or not. Is it enough just to gain riches? Is it enough just to be really good at what we do? Is it enough? Does it actually give us meaning? Does it actually help anybody, ourselves, our families, the world around us? Is it actually honoring to God? And so we forget sometimes that the world is full of what Jake Meter, a Christian author, and I am abbreviating uh, when I say this in just a minute, we forget that the world is full of what Jake Meter would call BS jobs. Just kind of pointless jobs, right? We forget that actually we are still stuck in this imminent frame. That there is this sort of system that's impossible to escape. That's not to say that your job's not worth doing. We'll have to feed ourselves, feed our families, do things, even, even to the glory of God. It's, it's not to say that you can't do those jobs to the glory of God. But that there's a system that we're stuck in. There's a vanity in life. There's a vanity in the world as it is. At the top of so many economic ladders, right, there's a couple of people or one person, and they're paying people to do kind of pointless jobs, right? Pointless in that that person doesn't get much out of them, out of the job. It doesn't do a whole lot for their family. It doesn't do a whole lot for society, if anything. Maybe it strips the earth of its real value. Maybe it strips humanity of its real value, and yet sometimes we have to do what we have to do to make a buck and feed our kids, feed ourselves have a home to live in. But we forget that we're stuck in this place, that we live in this world, that there is this shadow of death hanging over us, right? And that's kind of what Solomon is doing for us. He's kind of, he's kind of creating a cloud to hang over us, and we need that cloud. We need to be reminded that that's the world we live in, that we are walking around under this cloud of toil and emptiness. Um, there is a man who, uh, I don't actually know the actor's name. I looked it up last night, actually, but I can't remember it. And I think that goes to serve the point even better. And I'm not kidding. I actually just can't remember his name. It's like Bjornsson or Thorson or something. Um, Hapfer, Hopfer, something like that. You know, it's a very, like, Scandinavian name. And this guy, he's the actor who plays the mountain in the popular series, The Game of Thrones. And... Uh, I've never seen it, but I think he's like a gladiator sort of figure. And he's this huge guy who's filled with muscle and, uh, you know, he, he instills fear in other people. Well, the actor himself is, is actually a huge guy. He's like 6'8 and 300, 350 pounds. I don't know, something like that. And he's actually really good at what he does. Uh, before he became an actor, 
he was one of the best strongman athletes in the world. It's that, maybe you've seen it on like ESPN 2 on a summer's afternoon when, you know, really big guys pick up like boulders and turn over logs and throw things, right? And it's kind of cool, actually. Uh, but this guy is really dedicated to his craft. And I remember years ago reading an Instagram post that he made. And he talked about being the best at what he does. And he talked about all the dedication that he puts into what he does. And he was essentially boasting about what he does. But in his boasting, he said, this is my entire life. <laughs> and he seemed okay with that. And he says, I always go to bed at 8 p.m. I always wake up at 6 a.m. I never drink alcohol. I eat 5,000 calories a day or something like that, right? I work out three times, a, you know, all this stuff. But when you consider what he's doing, you can see videos of him. He, he takes whole meals because he eats like six times a day. And he takes whole meals, chicken and rice and vegetables and spinach and all these things that he can get nutrients from. And rather than sitting down to enjoy a meal, he blends them all together. And then he chugs them out of the pitcher on top of the blender. <laughs> and this guy is committed to it and he thinks it's awesome. And you know, I'm not saying that there's no good in what he does or that there's nothing that we can learn from his dedication or that there's no value in it. I'm not saying that, but I am saying he seems a little lost in it. He's okay with this. The guy can't just go have a beer with his buddies at nine o'clock because he's always in bed. No exceptions. He can't sit down and enjoy a meal because he's got to chug it. He has to make sure he gets enough protein to keep his muscles up. Right? And so his whole life is taken up in this one thing. And I don't know if he stopped to consider if the thing he's doing, though he's doing it so well, is worth doing. I can't remember the guy's name and I looked it up last night. I don't know if you've ever heard of him unless maybe you've seen him on the show. In 30 years, he'll be too old to be a strong man and no one will remember him. The thing about a lot of our empty toil, as Solomon, I think, gets at here, uh, is that essentially it's, it's empty. We can't get what we want out of it. And when we pursue riches, because that's one of the things he talks about here, when we pursue riches at all costs, when we envy our neighbors and we try to get that life, you know, the American dream, uh, lots of riches, a comfortable life, whatever it is, what we find is we've actually just fallen into a cycle of idolatry, one of the other sad cycles we live in in sin. Now, the Bible talks about idolatry like this, um, that it's not just what we actually physically bow down to, but that it's what we hope in. That's what we find meaning in. That's what we hope for. That's what, it's the thing toward which we dedicate ourselves outside of God. And so Psalm 115 says this, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. Literal idols, he's talking about here, but listen. They have mouths, but do not speak, eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear, noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel, feet, but do not walk, and they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. We get emptied out. 
Our idols, they don't take us anywhere good. They empty us out. They make us less and less human and more and more like them. In the end, we find we can't even enjoy life as it is because we need that thing. We need that idea. We need that comfort level. We need that money, that next vacation. But actually, it's just hollowed us out. Joe Pug, the musician, puts it like this. He's singing a song uh, in which a young man's on a journey into a, a new town. And he runs into these people that he calls the legendary takers. And he says they come to him and they say, uh, you've brought less than you should rightfully possess. And they're encouraging him, go get more. Get more of what you can get. But Joe Pug says this, but the more I buy, the more I'm bought. And the more I'm bought, the less I cost. I just become empty in this pursuit. I become less than what I was. I get hollowed out. I become like the things that I worshipped. And in the end, there's just emptiness. It's vanity and a striving after wind. Really, Brian has talked about that. He's, he's talked about this idea of vanity and striving after wind. When we try to grab onto something and we just can't get it. When you hike up into the mountains is one of the illustrations he's given before. And you, you hike into a cloud, but then, you know, when you're at the bottom, it looks awesome. Like there's a cloud up there. And then you get up there and there's, there's like mist around you sometimes if you're in a really thick cloud. But there's nothing within like eight feet of you. You can't actually get your hands on anything. And so you've come up so close to it, but you just can't grab it. Sometimes we think that whatever we want is worth what it turns us into. And the nasty thing about that is that we get hollowed out by it and we still don't get the thing. Um, have you ever been on vacation and come back needing another vacation? Right, we work hard and we save money and we go on vacation and we're really, really hoping that that vacation will be like what we need. I just know that's what I need. I'm gonna sit back with my Mai Tai on the beach and I'm gonna take naps every day and I'm just gonna kick it with my, my husband or my wife and I'm gonna come back rested and tan, gloriously tan. But then you get back and actually what happened was gas went up on your way there so there's more financial strain than you thought there would be, right? You actually ended up chasing your toddler the whole time because you had to make sure they didn't run into the water and drown themselves. Your extended family just kept getting into fights and you had to stop it all, and, or you were the one fighting and somebody else had to stop you, right? And what you find is you get back and you're exhausted and the thing you so wanted, the thing you so hoped for, you didn't get. One of the problems with this, one of the problems of man is that eternity has been placed into our hearts. We know there's something more and we want to grasp at it. But we grasp at all the wrong things. Eternity has been placed into our hearts and yet we're so bent that we can't see the only thing around us that lasts. We can't see the image of God all around us in people. Psalmist says you work and work and work. You suffer, you die. You're caught up in the cycle of birth, suffering, toil, death, right? But you miss something so important. 
And he wants us to see the worthwhile thing. He says, don't miss what life is actually got that's going for it. Don't miss what's actually good in life. Don't get caught up in the cycle of empty toil. Live your life around the highest priorities, which are people. The physical imagery in, in this passage, uh, it actually tells us about the good of friendship. It's not just a business venture where you have a partner. It's not just somebody to help you get more gain, right? And even though it doesn't say, this person is a bomb to your soul and you talk about life over coffee, it's giving us physical imagery, right? Because any good poem has good imagery. And so he says, when two are together and one falls, the other picks him up, right? When two are cold at night, they're able to keep each other warm. But when you're all alone, you stay cold. When someone comes against you to fight you, well, they may win, but if you have a friend with you, someone there for the hard times, it's hard to prevail against that. In fact, he goes on to say, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Um, I'll explain that real quick, and then we'll keep talking about this. Uh, a threefold cord is not quickly broken. Commentators you know, kind of debate over that as they do everything, and um, they have all sorts of ideas about it. I think the idea is actually really simple. It's not that there's a third person now, like three is better than one. I, I think the idea is more along the lines of the sum of a thing, or a thing, sorry, I should say, is more than the sum of its parts. When you have two people together, they're not just two individuals when they're friends. They're friends with a friendship. They exist within something greater than themselves. There's something more about them together than there is when they're apart. There's something good. And this exists not just with friends, but it exists with sons and brothers, like he talks about here. It exists with daughters, with wives and husbands, with fathers, mothers. There's something more. There's something greater than just being in the same room when we have a close relationship with someone. Solomon wants us to see the good in life. He wants us to have a reimagined life. He wants us to see what our real priorities could be and, and should be. Not just gain, not just a, a good career, but people, a life built around people. Too often we don't stop and think, in my future, I could be surrounded with people who love me and whom I love. Too often when we project into our futures, we think, I could have a job that's really good. Maybe even one that I like. One that pays really well. And I could have a yacht, <laughs> right? A yacht, because that's what life is about. If you have a yacht, by the way, I'm not hating on you. Please invite me over. <laughs> but we've got to remember that's not the point of life. We can have so much and miss what is, what's actually good, even though it's right in front of us. Look, this may be one of the several main reasons that abortion is still an issue in our country. Because we've forgotten that materialism is one of our greatest enemies. And all of us, all of us, church included, have contributed to building an image of the good life in which people aren't included. So anything that keeps us from the false good life that we think we can have, we, we get rid of. We take the easiest step toward getting rid of it. We don't imagine that future with sons and daughters. We don't think, 
well, my life is very different now, but actually this is good. No, we think this is terrible. And we've all done that. No matter if you've had one or not, no matter if you support it or not, we've all contributed to that. We've all bought into the lie on some level. And the Bible, God's word is here today telling us, no, actually, we could build our lives so differently. We could have something truly worthwhile. It's all around us. Look, this is the reason America is anxious and sad. We don't have friends. It doesn't take a whole lot of digging in statistics to see that either. How many close friends does the average American have? Go home and Google it. You'll find it's pretty sad. Go, go home and Google how many uh, neighbors does the average American know from in their neighborhood. Maybe think, maybe reflect on your own life. My friend Dave Latham and I, um, he's a pastor down in Alabama, and he was once kind of my boss. I won't really admit that uh, when I was in seminary. But he's a good friend of mine, and we always would kind of tease each other. And whenever one of us kind of got like an obvious one up on the other in our poking fun, the other would usually respond with something like this, well, at least I have friends. Because we all know that's the deepest cut we can take, that, oh, well, you're all alone. Man, that gets to the core real quick, doesn't it? Dave and I were kidding. We weren't hurting each other's feelings. But, I mean, we were each other's friends. So don't model your friendships on us, is what I'm saying. But we all know that that's, that gets serious really fast, doesn't it? There's no one to comfort the oppressed. We work and toil with no one to share it with. And at the end, we die anyway. And we're forgotten. No matter what sort of rise to power you have, few people are remembered. Think of any kingdom, any empire that you know about. You probably know only a, a small fraction of the kingdoms and empires that have ever existed. You might know a few names like Julius Caesar. You might know a couple of people from South America, before uh, Europeans landed on its shores. And yet there are so many more we don't. So many who are, are not even recorded in history, much less remembered by anybody else. We will die and be forgotten. That is the cloud that's hanging over us. Solomon wants us to deal with this. He wants us to take a good, long look at it. And say, there are things in our lives that are better than other things, but at the end, this is our lot. I don't know everything that happens in this life and after. I don't understand God's ways, but I know this, that we will die. I know that we have to consider that as we determine how to live our lives. And he says that in the middle of our lives, there's this, these relationships. The image of God, which lasts forever, which now us with our fuller revelation than Solomon, we know. We know what happens to the soul of people. We know we are created in the image of God. We have something more than Solomon had. And yet he tells us that this is what matters. This is what your life could be like.
And it's actually so much better than having money and food and cars and iPhones and hot showers and all the things that we think are necessities in our lives. He says, this is the real necessity. What we really need at the end of the day is love. It's a lack of love. That's the reason babies fail to thrive, even when they have all the necessary nutrients. Right? It's the lack of love that keeps us sad and anxious and hidden. It's a lack of love, actually, sometimes that keeps us pushing love away. This is actually what we need. Uh, kids, you will get this, I think, if you've ever seen Lilo and Stitch. We watched this just the other night uh, with Jude and Audrey. And in that movie, there's this little monster named Stitch, and he's super strong. I think they said he can lift 3,000 times his weight, which approximates how much I can lift. Um, and then he's basically indestructible, and all he wants to do is destroy, and most of the time he gets to do that. But he lands on Earth after trying to escape being destroyed. And rather than getting to go to a big city, which he is genetically programmed to destroy and have a good time doing, he lands on a little island in Hawaii, and he's surrounded by water, and he can't swim, and there are no big cities to destroy. And so everything he wants, everything he likes to toil for is taken away from him. But after spending a couple weeks with Lilo and her sister, and after seeing how beautiful their life is together, even though they're poor, even though they only have each other, even though their parents are dead, this little monster starts to get what we so often fail to get. Stitch understands that what we need is love. So at the end of the movie, he's finally caught by the people who are chasing him, and he says, can I just say goodbye? I just need to go say goodbye to my family. And they say, what, who are these people? And he says, they're my family. He had nobody before. He wasn't born. He was created. And yet he says, I found family. I found love. And he says, we are small and we are broken, but we are good. Solomon wants us to see what is actually important in life. And it's people. So let's reimagine the good life. Let's do it ourselves. Let's Let's pull away all those things that, that get in the way, that we think are necessary, that we think make us happy and actually just leave us empty. Let's help our society do it. Let's continue to, to paint something beautiful in front of them. Even just living a good life, an actual good life, does so much good in our world. And yet there's more than just relationships with friends, right, or family. We have higher priorities still. And this, I think, is also what this passage is leading us toward, what the whole of Ecclesiastes is leading us toward. And I'm going to say it like the Dos Equis guy says it. Stay thirsty, my friends. There's more still. There's something greater even than our human relationships. We were created for human relationships, even in paradise. Man needed a match. And lo and behold, what did that match make for him? More people. We were designed for relationships. And yet always there was something greater. We were created, created for fellowship and joy with one another. But even more than that, we are created for joy in God with one another. 
So what we need is to see beyond the cycle that we live in. What we need is to break out of that frame, that imminent frame that we live in, where there's a cloud over our head. We need to learn to accept it and live wisely in it, but we also need to see that little star shining above and through the cloud. More than that, we don't just need to see through the cycle, we need someone to break the cycle. What we really need is love and relationships. We don't just need to love someone, we need to be loved. And there is someone who has loved us so much that he has broken the cycle, that he has stepped into the world that we inhabit under the cloud. In death and toil and misery and oppression and crying. And he has come into this world to be our friend. This is what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. No greater love has a man than this, that he would lay down his life for his friends. And then what did he do? He went and laid down his life for his friends. God so desires to be with us that he sent his own son, not only just to come into our world, but to be like one of us and take what we deserve so that we could be with him. He came from outside of the frame. He came from outside of the cycle to break the cycle. It's true we still live in it in some sense. We definitely do. We need to take a long, hard look at it and learn how to live in it. But we also have something so much more now. We have the love of Jesus shown to us on the cross, breaking the cycle, eventually bringing an end to it. When we will be right with God 100%. Not just in our justification, but in our nearness to him. When all the world will be set right and our relationships with each other will no longer be broken. Our family won't just be small and broken. It'll truly be good. So we need to learn to live in this world as it is, but we also need to learn to hope in our Savior, Jesus. And in doing so, I think we can reimagine the good life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please uh, help, us, help us to accept the hard truths of the world that we live in, of sin and decay and brokenness and emptiness, and help us not to be caught up in them. Help us not to buy it. Help us to continue hoping in your son, Jesus, to rest in him, to know him and know his love and experience his love and to seek what's better, not only just among what we can see, but what we can't see, but has been promised to us. And in the name of Jesus, we pray, amen.